So good to see you all this morning and be before you. Oh man, what a great, uh, a great post-Christmas Sunday it is here. Um, I hope you all had an amazing time celebrating Christmas with your families, even if that meant having to be at a distance. Um, as this is our last Sunday service of 2020, so hey, look, we can praise God that we made it through 2020. We are almost there. The new year is approaching. One of the things that I will say is that it is really important that this upcoming week, before we get into 2021, we actually spend some time just seeking God and praising God and being thankful for all that he's done for us, even in the midst of the craziness that 2020 has been. Spending time in prayer and thanksgiving over God's provision, because guess what? We are still here. We're still breathing. Some of us are struggling. We're going through hard times, but we can just be thankful for all that he's done, even in the craziness of this year. Um, and so as we get ready to think about today and this, this message I'm getting ready to, to give, I cannot help but think that this message will be one of encouragement and also one of challenge as we look at our lives as a body of Christ going into 2021. 2020 has been such a wild year for so, so many of us. So we can go on and on talking about how crazy it has been. But when we think about all of these things, there has been so much suffering and pain throughout the entire world and even in our own lives. And we can sometimes face really, really hard situations and really have a hard time understanding and making sense of suffering. Suffering is one of those things that is really hard to really comprehend and understand. But one thing I can say, though, about suffering is that generally the way we respond to suffering and hardship and tough situations is a reflection of something so much deeper, the state of the human heart. The way that we can look at the world around us and the way people respond shares a whole lot. I mean, when you think about, look throughout all of history and just think about all the times people have and how people have responded to circumstances. So think about right now in the global pandemic, COVID-19, a lot of the initial response and even some of this response today has been a lot of anger and fear, which people have also taken out against other people, which has even caused some disunity even among Christians. And I mean, hey, it's expected to feel some fear over a pandemic and the fear of being sick or getting someone else sick. Right. Those things are are things that we see. But one thing I will say, though, is that suffering and trials and facing opposition can cause some restlessness within the human heart and within the soul. Just think about all throughout history. Think about past recessions, wars and famines. Think about even Y2K back in the year 2000 when people were freaking out about the electronics and all that type of stuff. Or even think about 2012 and the Mayan calendar and people thinking like, oh my goodness, this world is about to end. So much that it led to some people actually killing themselves because they were afraid that this world was going to end. Right? The, even, even when we think about the list goes on and on of circumstances of suffering or even perceived instances where suffering will happen. And you can see how people have responded poorly at times, even ourselves, even ourselves. But what if that did not have to be the case? What if it didn't have to be the case? What if the calling for us is that we would actually know and learn how to respond well in suffering and opposition? What if we could stand firm and have joy even in the midst of the toughest situations in our lives? And I think that this text that we'll be in today reveals Paul's longing for the Philippian church to live well in the face of opposition. As this is something that we are all working towards today, is how are we going to suffer well? 
And so Paul will be in Philippians chapter 1, and Paul is writing to this church in Philippi from a, a, a jail cell for preaching the gospel. He got locked up for preaching the gospel. And this letter is one of intimacy. As a church in Philippi, even when you go read it, it's really poetic in the way that he talks to them. You see this deep care and love that he has for this church as he has gotten to partner with them in the gospel, but then also see them grow in their faith as he wants to even see it happen all the more. And so this text is set up around Paul's suffering for Christ, his desire to be with Christ above all things, but also his desire to also be with the church of Philippi in person, even though he is in jail. And so where we'll be today is in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. So if you have your Bibles, please stand with me for a reading of God's word. And we'll be reading that together. Philippians 1, 27 to 30. Please stand for me for the reading of God's word. And it says this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so, whether, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. As reading God's word, you may be seated. And so Paul's calling for the church in Philippi is one of a higher standard of living that is given to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The calling for us today as children of God is that our response to suffering in tough situations is going to reflect the worthiness of the gospel. It will reflect the worthiness of the gospel. And so with that being said, my big idea or big question for this morning is this. Does the way that you live your life through trials and suffering show that Christ is worth your suffering? Does the way that you live your life during trials and suffering show that Christ is worth your suffering? So as we journey through this text, be thinking about this question in regards to this year in life just in general. Because the suffering of Christ and the majesty of Christ is what actually makes our suffering worth it. And this text will actually help us see that today. All I have for you this morning is just three points. And my first point is this. Your life should reflect the worthiness of the gospel. Your life should reflect the worthiness of the gospel. Beginning of verse 27, it says this, Only, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. To comprehend what Paul is saying, he's saying you have to look back at the whole chapter, but really verses 24 to 26, and here he's talking to them about his longing to depart and be with Christ above so many things, but he knows that it is very beneficial for him that if he stays alive, it will be helpful for the church in Philippi. Paul staying alive is so that he can also be someone that points them towards the glory of Christ, but also so that he can see them glory in Christ so that he can have joy. He wants to be a part of seeing them come to know Jesus all the more and worship him, even while he is away. He wants to see them exalt Jesus and grow. That's what he desires. And so this longing to grow is what leads him his longing, this longing for them to grow is what leads him in verse 28 to say what he says. And he's like, until I see you in person, until I see you, I want you to live in a way that makes the gospel look worth it. Let your manner of life, let your manner of life. So he starts this, this text, this, this, this section with saying, 
only, only let your manner of life. This is this like the word only is like the strong and intense focus. It's like, hey, if there's one thing that I want you to do for me, it's just this one. This is it. I want you just to do this. It's almost as if when I think about growing up and my mom at times, when I would go to the grocery store, say, hey, listen, I only want you to go to the store. Now, I don't need you running around town going anywhere else. I need to go to the store, pick up this and that, because if you don't get it, we won't be able to eat because I need it for this meal. Right? So just that's the only thing I want you to go and do. And so here, Paul is wanting them to live their life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. The Greek word for manner here, like literally for manner of life, means politima, which means citizenship. It means citizenship. It means to conduct oneself or or fulfill a duty. It could also even mean to just boil down as this, being a good citizen. And so essentially what Paul is saying to them is that they should fulfill their civic duties as citizens, but mainly as heavenly citizens, as they reflect a relationship of what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel. And so Paul is kind of giving in this loving gut punch here because the church in Philippi would have actually been filled with a ton of people who prized their Roman citizenship more than they did their heavenly citizenship at times. But he really isn't even focused on their Roman citizenship as much as he is focused on their heavenly citizenship. He's really not. Henceforth, that's why he actually mentions that their manner of life should be worthy of what? The gospel. That's heavenly. Right? And he even talks about it, and if you go further, in two chapters later, he talks about in Philippians 3.20, and he says that your citizenship is in heaven. So you see that that's one of his main concerns for them, is that they would actually live like Christ followers, above all things. Okay, And this would have been really, really important, because he deeply cares and wants them to take seriously their heavenly citizenship and honor it, even as they lived out their civic duties, as citizens in Philippi. He wants them to live out their heavenly citizenship even more, but he also wanted to do it as they walked out their civic duties as Philippi citizens. But the thing is, that would have also meant, though, being in opposition to the Roman citizenship. Because some of the Roman ways would have been uplifting Caesar and actually opposing God. So what Paul, what this goes into is like, he's like, I want you to understand that we do not oppose God, so I want you to actually live in a way that you are such a citizen that it shows. So that means that being in opposition at times. And I think this is appropriate for us to be hearing today. I think it really, really is. As I started to think about this, and it's like, man, some of us have been more focused on our American citizenship and our political preferences than our heavenly ones. And this has caused so many problems within even the church today, as some have neglected the calling of living as heavenly citizens, living for a heavenly kingdom that is perfect, where it's become, we've become to idolize the nation so much that in ways we actually neglected looking like Christians, worshiping our leaders and our rights as American citizens rather than worshiping King Jesus. That's what has happened Today, who are we worshiping by the way that we live? Is it Jesus or is it being an American? Which one? And this has actually led to so much division across the church in America, a lot of division. And it actually has been confusing to even people in the world of what does it even mean to be a Christian? Because you look just like me as you prize your American citizenship more than you actually do looking like someone that follows Jesus. And this is something that God does not like. And Paul is giving a picture here of that as he's telling them to live in this way. But what we must understand is that the gospel, 
should be our main focus of living. The gospel of Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection over the power of sin and death, the thing that separates us from God, knowing that Christ died but he rose again to literally restore us and fulfill all of our desires for all of eternity in him, only him. And that should be seen in our lives. Prizing Christ is what it's all about. Who Jesus is and what he has done for us should show in the way that we live. John Piper, in regards to this verse, he actually said that this, he says, it is idolatry to say that the gospel is of infinite value for any reason less than by it we gain Christ. So to fulfill your heavenly civic duty on the planet is to show the infinite value of the gospel because the gospel gets you Christ. It gets you Christ. So essentially, he means like, what, does what we preach and teach and how we live our life in every single circumstance reflect the goodness and worth of the gospel? Does it reflect how good Christ is, having him is? Does our life actually reflect that he is worth prizing above all things? Our lives should reflect this goodness. Think of it this way, if I share up this really far off illustration. So Michael Jordan, one of the greatest basketball players of all time. Okay, some people might want to argue that with me and say it's either LeBron James or some people might even say Kobe, but hey, we're not going to get near there. Okay, so when you think about the way that Michael, Michael Jordan played basketball, the way that his will to win, all the championships, right? If you go, even if you go look at the last dance, which shameless plug here, if you haven't seen it, you should go see it, pray for me, because I actually binge watched it, which I probably should not have done. But listen, you should go watch it because it shows this picture of how this man literally worked and played at such a high level that we can sit here today and say he is one of the greatest and he's in the argument as probably the greatest basketball player. So the way that he played basketball reflected something, that he was great at it. It reflected something. And so when I think about us as Christians, therefore, as Christians who love Jesus, our lives should reflect the goodness of the gospel and the gloriousness of Christ all the more. All the more. Our lives should reflect it. We must not be like those in our culture who claim Christ, but do not live in a way that actually serves, shows that he's worth it. Who claim Christ, but actually hate their brother and sister. Who claim Christ, but literally totally neglect God's clear commands and scriptures on how to live who claim Christ but don't want to repent of their sin and just keep walking in it. People who claim Christ, you know, but don't want to serve others. Who claim Christ but fight with their brother and sister. Who doesn't want to fight for truth and justice. Who claims Christ but we cling to our vices and our idols to satisfy us more than we do Jesus. That doesn't show that the gospel of Christ is of infinite value. That having him is of infinite worth and value. Now, this doesn't mean, though, I have to give a little warning and caveat, this doesn't mean that we will never fail as we try to follow Jesus. That's not what it means. It does not mean that one bit, But because tr trust me, I fail often. You can ask my wife. I fail very often. But one of the things, though, that this tells us is that does our pursuit of Christ in the midst of failure and tough situations and suffering reveal the magnitude of Christ being worthy to exalt? in the way that we live our lives, the way we interact with people, the way that we worship him, especially when things get hard. And Paul wanted them to live in a manner worthy, but the question is, how do we actually do that? Like, what does it look like for us to live like this? And Paul gives us an answer, which leads me to my second point, and it's this. Our unity and fearlessness in the face of opposition 
is a clear sign of the worthiness of the gospel. Our unity and fearlessness in the face of opposition is a clear sign of the worthiness of the gospel. In verse 27, the second half of it, and uh, going into 28, it says this, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. And so here, right after Paul calls them to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel, he gives us, them this appeal to do this regardless of if he is with them or not. So he's pretty much saying live in Christ-like integrity even if nobody is looking. But really, one of the main ways he desires them to do this is that he is hearing. He's going to hear about it even in his absence. So their life is reflecting something. That they are living out their civic duty as heavenly citizens by standing firm in one spirit standing firm in one spirit, to command the church in Philippi to stand firm and even strive side by side for the faith of the gospel reveals that there is probably some division amongst the brothers and sisters in the church. If not, he would not have had to go and tell them to actually go strive side by side and be of one mind. But he's calling them to this, to stand firm, meaning he wants them to be in unity through the power of the Holy Spirit. And to stand firm in one spirit is like this solid foundation of oneness and unity in Christ that is immovable, inseparable. It is unwavering. It is absolutely unwavering with standing against anything that seeks to destroy it. It is like a soldier who literally is willing to defend his position no matter the cost, even if that means losing his life. That's what standing firm together looks like here in this picture of this text. Even if it means losing your life, I'm going to stand firm in oneness. That's what he's want. And so as a calling for the church in Philippi is to stand firm in one spirit, it is also to be of one mind, focus on the same thing, same thing, thinking of the same mission, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul's use of the word striving here in verse 27 reverts to the idea of wrestling, okay, within company with or to seek jointly. And it comes from the Greek word, the striving comes from the Greek word santaneo, and it's broken down into two words. The first part of the Greek word is son, which, could all, which means to denote union or together, or even mean completeness, okay? So he's talking about being together. And then the other word is atheo, which means to contend in competitive games. So essentially what he is saying is, hey, I want the Philippians to be united in complete oneness in wrestling with each other as they are essentially to look like athletes who are competing to win, competing together. They're fighting together. There is something out there that we need to be fighting for. Let's do it together for a common goal, and that goal is for the faith of the gospel. Famous theologian John Calvin says it this way when, in regards to striving together for the faith. He says, striving side by side is the strongest bond of concord. Concord just means harmony between people. When we have to fight together under the same banner, for this has often been the occasion of reconciling even the greatest enemies. Calvin believed that Paul was calling the church in Philippi to be united together and is, is a common armory against the same enemy using faith as victory in a panoply. Panoply just means armor. Fighting together. This reminds me 
of like binding, binding strong together and fighting of when I played ball at BGSU. So in 2015, during that year, we played against three Power Five schools. Normally, when you hear of a, max, a, five, a small school like Bowling Green playing against Power Five schools, you're like, we don't even want to watch. It's going to be a slaughter. It's going to be really bad. But we played against Tennessee, Maryland, and Purdue that year. Okay, and we beat Maryland and Purdue. And one of the things I will I remember vividly is the way that our locker room felt after the game, but even during the weeks of practice, and our whole team was unified. We really were. It was like we can do this together, working hard together, encouraging one another, fighting alongside, knowing that we have something big at hand that we could go and do. And it was in this of fighting together and also not being afraid as this was a posture of how we felt as a team, as a posture of the heart. And so when I think about my time playing ball and I reflect on Paul's words here, he's saying that the gospel is something that is worth fighting for together. As fighting together for something draws people to one another. And so Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has accomplished to us, for us, through his loving death on the cross is worth fighting for and it must be worth fighting for. Because if it isn't, then our faith is absolutely pointless and there's no need for us to be in church today or ever read a Bible again. If the gospel in Christ and who he was was pointless, we shouldn't even be here. But it should be worth fighting for because here we are. So let's consider these words from Paul. To fight, to walk alongside one another in one spirit, striving side by side for the gospel. Let's think about that. And let's just ask this question like, who am I striving with? Who are you striving with? Who am I fighting for the gospel with? Think about those questions. Look at your life. Am I fighting for the gospel at all, even in my own life? And if I am, am I actually doing it with other people? Who are those people? Who are those people? And so as we continue in this text, Paul says next that they're striving. As they strive, they should not be frightened by anything, in anything by their opponents, in anything. That's what he's saying. So he is speaking to them in the face of suffering and opposition. So the church of Philippi was under some serious suffering and heat for trying to live for Christ in a city where people despised Christians and hated Jesus. They did. They were freaking out back then. Like, oh my goodness, these Christians are going to try to take over everything. We don't like them, which is henceforth, which is why we see Paul being in prison for just preaching the gospel. People actually hate it. Right? And during this time, these people could have been persecuted in Philippi literally just for fighting for Jesus, where people wanted to try to kill them or bring lies upon them or just throw them in prison. And even when I think about an opponent, it's not just the physical opponent. I also think about Satan, too, as an opponent, an a, a enemy who comes to steal, kill, and destroy and obliterate anybody's faith who tries to walk with Jesus. That is what he's trying to do. He does not want you to follow Jesus whatsoever. And he will do anything to take you away from Christ. But here, Paul's cause to not be frightened in anything. In anything. This is literally what he says. Or of anyone who can oppose our faith. Now we know that all fear, though, let me just say this, it's not all bad because the scriptures do call us to fear God and revere God. And also, too, if you were to be walking across a train track, I would hope that you would be a little scared if a train was coming. Like, that should be an initial response. If not, I will be praying for you because that should be normal. But, hey, that's just all I want to say. But, but listen, when I think about this, Paul is calling them to not be afraid of anything. And when, he, when he's talking about this being afraid or frightened, he's actually talking about a Greek word that resembles 
This is actually kind of funny. The uncontrollable stampede of startled horses. That's how far, this is how deep this goes. That's what, that's what he's talking about. So what he's essentially saying, and I can think of it this way, I would not want to be around startled horses. And I know none of us would be either because we would probably get trampled. But here he is saying, so you know what? I do not want you to freak out or panic. Startled horses would freak out and panic, and it is violent. But he's saying, I don't want you to do that. Do not be afraid in that way. Do not freak out or panic by anything from your opponents. And when I think about this, I get really, really elated as he calls them to fearlessness and unity in the face of everything they are going through. But I also cannot help at the same time feel the weight of this text even as I read this and I look at my own life and I start to wonder, am I living like a heavenly citizen myself? Am I? Am I in fear and panic at a world who looks to defame the name of Jesus, who looks to oppose me because I love Jesus? Am I also living in unity and fighting with my brothers and sisters for the gospel or am I fighting against them? This is what this text does even as I read this. Even as I read this. Now, when we live in unity and fearlessness, as a body of Christ, it says that it is a clear, it says clear, it is an evident sign. Meaning it speaks and declares to our opponents of their destruction and of our salvation, which is from God. So here Paul is connecting the dots even from the beginning of, yes, your life should look like something. It should communicate something. It should communicate the worthiness of the gospel, but then it also communicates that those who look to oppose us is headed for destruction and of our salvation. And this destruction that it is referring to is an eternal separation from God, a perishing and suffering for all of eternity for anyone that does not want to actually follow Jesus and repent and turn from their sin. So anyone that is listening today, if you have not repented or followed Jesus, there is destruction that is going to happen in this eternal separation from God. That can be the expected end for someone who doesn't want to believe and follow Christ. But those of us who are in Christ, there is an expected hope and end that we actually have for eternity that is in heaven with him. The blessed hope of salvation in Christ is witnessed in us when we live together in unity without fear, because it shows that we have a hope in Jesus. And so you see how all of this just binds itself together, the savoring of the gospel and having Christ and the hope that we have in him. Just see how all that comes together. It reveals itself in the way that we live, showing, showing that we have confidence in God, even in trial and suffering. And guess what? The best part of this text that I love this is why I love the gospel so much. And it says this is from God. It's from God. It's God's doing. He provides. He changes us. He's the reason that we are able to walk in unity. He's the reason that we're able to walk in fearlessness and also reflect our salvation and the worthiness of the gospel in all of those things. He is. His spirit is the one that equips us for this. And so when I think about that, we can rejoice and say, yes, I am a Christian when people, but when we bond together, even in a world where people are looking to oppose us, when we aren't afraid of Satan or anything else, because we have been given a hope in God through Christ for all of eternity. Being, a, being opposed by anything outside to pull us away from Christ is a mark 
that shows that we are God's children. Because why would anyone want to oppose something that's not of true worth? It would be a waste of time. It would be really a waste of time. It's pointless to go oppose something if it doesn't matter. But the gospel must matter if people are opposing us for it. The gospel is of true worth. He's, Paul even says that from the beginning of this letter, even through the rest of this letter, and even throughout the New Testament and all the letters he writes, because this is the same guy that talks about to live as Christ, to die as game. The same one who says, I'm willing to literally take beatings, to be stoned. You want to throw me in prison? You want to rip some of my flesh off? Go for it. Christ is worth all of that. That's what it shows. And so even in that, we can be thankful, though, that God graciously, he gives us the sign of our salvation. And I think some of us might actually need to hear that today, though. The reason being, because some of us might have actually be, might recently be, have been saddened, angered, or frustrated, maybe because we have family and friends who have been making fun of us because we desire to live in holiness. People who are saying that, oh yeah, Christ isn't real. Christianity is a fairy tale. There is no God. Or the lies in your head from Satan that tell you, oh yeah, you should just give up. It's not worth fighting for, even when things are hard. But let me tell you, you can be confident in the promises of Christ that you will be with him forever. Even Jesus himself speaks of this in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes. I love the Beatitudes. And he says this, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. So you want to follow Jesus? He said, blessed are you when people persecute you and you want to walk in holiness. Walking in holiness is a good thing. Let me just say that. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And I love this next part. Woo, I love this next part. He, look, look, Jesus himself says it this way. Even when you're persecuted, go and read. He says, rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice and be glad. For what? Your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so we can rejoice and be glad because we have a kingdom and something that we get in, as a promise from God forever, a kingdom in heaven, even in the face of opposition. So there is nothing to fear because we get God through Christ for all of eternity. But we must understand something in relation to all of this, even in this promise, and it is this, that even though we are promised to be with him in eternity, Suffering will still happen in your life as a Christian, which leads me to my third point. My third and final point is this. God is gracious to us even in the suffering, even in suffering. God is gracious to us even in suffering. It says this in verse 29 and 30. It says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still had, have. And so as I read this, some of us in here, even right now, might be faced with some anger or sadness or even some confusion, wondering why in the world does God allow us to suffer for his sake? Why? Suffering literally is painful. It is. Going through rough times in life, whether that's the loss of a loved one or whether that's physical illness or rough financial situations, bad relationships, friends, that is not, it's painful. It really is. Or maybe some people might in here might be really in love with pain so much to say, bring on the suffering. I want it as if you're like Paul. But regardless of where you are in this, 
I want to focus on the fact that God and his perfection and his love for all of us would do whatever it takes to draw us to himself and form us into his lovely image, into the image of his son. And you can see that even in his text. And Paul concludes this chapter by reminding the Philippians for the reason that they are facing opposition and going through suffering to help us better understand verse 28. And it's so that they know that their suffering is for the sake of Christ. The suffering is for the sake of Christ. And he says it has been granted to them. It has been granted to them. The word here in the Greek is herisimo. It means to show favor, to give freely. And it simply can be translated as grace. And so the scripture tells us that God graciously gives us the ability to, one, believe in Christ. Amen. Praise God that he awards us the ability to believe in him, as that is a gift from him. But he also graciously gives us the gift of suffering. Now, isn't this interesting? This is an interesting way to explain suffering. It really, really is. It's like, oh, yeah, you want a gift from God? You want some grace? Here's a little suffering for you. Here's a little bit of pain for you. Here's some hardship for you. And this can cause us to wonder, why, though? Why would this even be a gift? This this doesn't seem good. Why would this be a gift? I don't want to go through pain. I don't. Why would God allow me to suffer? And the answer to that question lies within the text that we read earlier, but also in other places of Scripture. As Paul even says in 2 Timothy uh, 3.12, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So yes, see, following Jesus is going to lead to some persecution, some hard things. But you also see in verse 29, though, of this chapter that, hey, your suffering is for the sake of Christ. Essentially, it is to be unified in Christ, suffering just like he suffered. I must say this. This is a gift. It is a cosmic display of divine love and grace because we do not deserve to even be alive because of our sin. We do not. Romans 6.23 can tell us that, that the wages of sin is death. That is what is supposed to happen. So when we aren't in Christ, we actually deserve to die. We deserve suffering. But the rest of the verse also says something in Romans 6.23. It says, but this is, you know, the the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's what it says. So God shows grace, and he gives us the privilege. He gives us the privilege to allow us to actually suffer. Isn't it an honor, a high honor to be able to suffer for the sake of Christ? Think about it, the Savior of the world, God in the flesh, who was perfect and holy, suffered. And being in Christ means that you get to partner in that. That is an honor, to be alongside God in the ability to suffer. And our suffering, though, is not in vain. It's not pointless. As we get to participate in the suffering of Christ, which has led to the greatest blessing we have ever received, that we celebrate every year around Easter, and it is Christ's resurrection. It is his resurrection, which awarded us eternal life in him. He was not bound to death or the suffering for our sin. He wasn't. And he loves us all enough to even allow us to suffer so that we can actually reap the benefits of Christ's glory, being made in his image, delighting in him, and being with him for all of eternity. And suffering makes this commitment to Christ tangible and real. It does. And it shows God's grace. And Paul himself, 
even when you fast forward a couple chapters later, Philippians 3, verse 10, he says it better than I ever could to help us, under, help us understand this. He says this, that I may know him. So he desires to just know God. He wants to know God. And this is why he goes into how he wants to know God. He says, in the power of his resurrection, it may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul here is saying that I want to know God so much that I want to suffer alongside him so that I can understand the beauty of the resurrection. So you see how beautiful that is. Even in your suffering, there's something there that is pointing us to something greater, and Paul wanted some of that as well. And this is all can be so comforting, even when you go dive into verse 30. Even when you dive into verse 30, because guess what? This is happening alongside other believers. You're not the only one suffering. We are in this thing together. As Paul mentions, like we are in the same, you are in the same conflict. I'm, I'm going through it too. You're not alone in this. It is a comfort to see that other believers are suffering just like our Lord did. So you see how it's all unified together. And this shows, even as we suffer alongside our brothers and sisters, that Christ's suffering is worth it and following him is worth it. And so as we close, please spend some time meditating upon this text, asking the question of, does my life reflect the worthiness of the gospel even in my suffering? Does my life reflect the worthiness of the gospel even in my suffering? And so my hope for us all will be yes, because suffering for Christ is worth it as you look at his death and his resurrection. As we can say, that this undeserved grace and love of him going to the cross on our behalf and him sacrificing his life was worth it. And Christ is worth it. Living like him. Worshiping him. Even in the midst of suffering, because we know in the end we get a hope that's so much better than even the suffering. So, as we get ready to go, let's live like this. Let's magnify him in our lives. Standing together firm in the faith, in one spirit, striving side by side with other believers for the sake of the gospel, not frightened or intimidated by anything, by our opponents, as we live as heavenly citizens going into 2021. Let us pray. I'm going to invite the band up. Father, we thank you so much for this morning and this opportunity to hear from you in your word. Father, I just pray for everyone out there that might be going through some pain and suffering right now. I pray that you would just meet them where they are, that they would just remember that there is so much worthiness of suffering and it points us to the beauty of your son, Father. As Jesus suffered and he died, but he also rose again. And to be able to participate in that is so loving of you to give to us, even though we deserve death. God, I pray for just unity and fearlessness amongst the body of Christ. I pray that this would be a time where in our country and in our world that Christians would stand together to actually reflect the goodness of the gospel everywhere that we go. That the world would see us and be like, man, what they have, I desire it because that is what life is all about, reflecting Jesus and his goodness in a world where people are trying to understand suffering and pain. We thank you so much for this text, and I just thank you for everyone that's here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.